You are now listening to Abstract Thought. This is a podcast where artists, creative designers, musicians, and anybody else doing cool creative things sit down and discuss some of their journey, some of their path, and some of the uh, trials and tribulations attributed with doing cool creative stuff in the modern era. I'm sitting down today with none other than Remy Ruff from London. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Thank you, Nick. I'm good. Awesome. Awesome. Um, for those of you who are listening who may not know Remy's work, um, Remy, where can people find your work via either Instagram, social media, website, um, etc.? Instagram, Instagram, Remy Ruff, and uh, website is just remyruff.com. That's pretty much everything I have. Cool, cool. Yeah, I've. Uh, for those of you listening, Remy's an extremely talented artist, muralist, studio painter. He's he's really delved his own uh, visual narrative and geometric style that I really really respect as somebody else who does geometric stuff. Um, Remy's one of the the true pioneers in kind of this this field of like contemporary geometric muralism. Um, you know, there have been many geometric painters of the past, but um, only until paint technology and spray paint has been around have people like Remy taken it to the uh, the public art forum on on the scale at which you have. So I've got tremendous respect for what you've done, Remy, and um, yeah. I, I definitely take a lot of influence from you and hopefully am, am steering my, uh, my passion for your artwork away from doing Remy-like works, but also still enjoying sharp yeah, lines yeah. myself. <laughs> I, I follow your work and I love what you're doing. I think you've got some really good structural stuff going on, you know, and and I think, you know, you can always tell people like us who come from a style writing background, you have that kind of, that that sensibility. So yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Awesome, man. Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I guess to kick things off, I don't want to go too far back, but if you can, what were some of the like early, early years for you, like before even graffiti, before, before really anything, were you, you know, sketching as a kid? Did you have any creatives in your family or art teachers? Um, I was always drawing. I was obsessed with drawing um, and kind of obsessed with art at a very young age. Um, my mom always used to tell me this story um, about, uh, I'd, I'd drawn this combine harvester at school and um, the teacher said, oh, well, you know, did you go to the country? Did you know, did Remy, where did Remy see this uh, combine harvester? And my mum was like, I haven't been to the, I haven't been anywhere. I don't know, he hasn't seen a combine harvester. And apparently I drew this combine harvester and, and I, I must have seen it in a book or something, but my mum seems to think that, you know, <laughs> I created it out of nothingness. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always been into the art. Um, my life, I guess, as a young person, as a kid, when I was at school, I just wanted to draw all the time. Um, but then when I was about nine, I went to dance school and that was my life for a long time. So I was going to be a dancer. Um, yeah. And then I kind of had this to and fro with art and dance and obviously art doesn't take loads of hours of practice and training um and that kind of one in the end and then you know within that I think I found graffiti um sort of 1980 late 1984 pro probably more 85 
Um, but I kind of already discovered like hip hop and electro and break dancing and that whole package had come over from the States. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the graffiti aspect really appealed to me. Definitely. That, that's super cool. And I, I love that story about the combine harvester. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how true it is, but yeah, my, my mom used to swear by it. What other things were you drawing back then? <clears throat> I, I was very into dinosaurs. Um, I used to draw a lot of dinosaurs. And where I live in London, in South London, there's a park called Crystal Palace. Um, there's a famous football team called Crystal Palace who um, I followed as a kid as well. Um, and they had this um, park in Crystal Palace full of these massive, I, I don't know what they were made of, but fiberglass maybe, um, fiberglass dinosaurs. And I used to love going there as a kid. And I was always obsessed with anything dinosaur related, you know, films, comic books, whatever. Um, and I remember being in my quite early 20s and going to see uh, Jurassic Park for the first time and taken uh, I'd taken um, a friend of my mum and dad's young kid um, who I used to babysit a lot I was like Look, let's go and see this film so I took him to see the film and I was just like oh my god it's never going to be the same again they've made dinosaurs real like this is it it blew me away I mean you're you're a lot younger than me but I was just like, this is insane. Yeah, it's just the Dinosaurs pinnacle of cinema at the time, too. Yeah, yeah, completely. The kid, I think he was 12, he totally didn't get it. It was just there, that was the moment. But as someone who grew up watching like Ray Harry Hausman films and, you know, like the kind of motion graphic dinosaurs that kind of, you know, they would move one bit at a time and take a frame and then another frame. I grew up watching that and then suddenly they come over that hill and there's dinosaurs. I was, oh my God. That's just insane. That's epic. I think my man. life changed on that day. <laughs> that, that's awesome, dude. That's so cool. Um, what was it like growing up in London during the time when you grew up there? Was it, were you kind of uh, suburbs? Were you more downtown? <clears throat> no, it's pretty central. Um, so I lived, I mean, like, so London is broken up into zones. You've got like zone one, which is like absolute center of town. And then zone two, zone three, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a zone two kid. You know, I grew up in zone two. Um, you know, I could get into like the, the city center in like 15 minutes easy. Um, it was quite a rough place to grow up in the 80s, I think, London. Um, we were... We were under the uh, maniacal leadership of uh, someone called Margaret Thatcher, who I don't know if you've ever heard of. She was a, our prime minister. She was a horrible person. Um, basically uh, broke our economy, broke the working man's economy. Um, she pretty much closed all the, all the coal mines and, and a lot of, at the time, um, working man's industry she she was just awful um and young people had nothing there was no outlets there was no youth clubs there was you know literally there was nothing and I think you know I know I, I always say that graffiti happened in New York at just the right point in time when the city was broke they couldn't afford to clean the 
trade. You know, like if it had happened five years earlier or five years later, I don't think it would have taken the way it did. Um, and I think it came to London at exactly the right time as well. So, you know, I picked up on it. I, I was part of something. I was part of something bigger. I was part of a community. Um, the people that I was hanging around with and, and moving with came from all kind of climbs of life. Some were rich kids, some were poor kids. You know, I mean, it just, it, it didn't really matter. You know, your social standing, your, your kind of background, your color, your race just didn't matter. You were part of this thing. Um, and I loved that. I loved being part of that. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. I, that's really, really well said with the New York City portion there too. Just seems like at a certain point, the the folks in the city have to respond to the state they're in in, in, in some fashion. And it's cool that creatively there, there's that outlet like that. Completely, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting as well because graffiti is, is the only art form in history created by and taken forward by children. I'm always telling people that, I'm like, historically, it's so important. Um, there's no other art movement in history that was created by children. You know, when these guys were painting whole cars in, in New York, they were, you know, like Mayor, who's, you know, one of my best friends. I mean, he was like 12 years old and he was painting whole cars. I mean, it's insane. 12 it's crazy. Years old. You know, if my, when my daughter was 12, you know, I can't even imagine her going into like, train yards and yeah it's crazy yeah that's it's hard to imagine i i saw a quote on um i believe it was maybe in minneapolis minnesota um, yeah somebody painted a small quote in a bridge that said something along the lines of like listen man anything you try to do in graffiti was probably done a lot better 35 years ago by a 14 year old kid high on angel dust <laughs> yeah i love that that's brilliant uh, did you get a photo of it? I, I've seen it shared around just on Instagram. Yeah. I, I personally oh. haven't seen it, but um, that's genius. I love that. That's hysterical. That, yeah. it, it is pretty crazy to think of what people were able to to, to do back then. Yeah. Speaking and, of graffiti and, back then, or go ahead. Well, I was just saying, and in a very hostile environment, you know, like those kids grew up in the Bronx and, and Mayor talks about the trauma of growing up in a war zone. Yeah, everything looked bombed out and just... Yeah. People were lighting the buildings on fire for insurance claims. Burning, it was just like madness. Years. They were burning for 10 years. So it's crazy. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, man. Um, when you first started doing graffiti, what, were you kind of doing tags initially? Or what was the, uh, what would you say the early graffiti years were like for you? So I, I was immediately into pieces and, and the kind of the, the artism I guess, um, a kid came into my school and I kind of knew, you know, I'd seen snippets of things on television and um, like music videos. Like I'd seen, I'd seen the, um, uh, oh God, what's come? the guy's name? Uh, Malcolm McLaren. I'd seen the Malcolm McLaren in the Rocksteady video and there's graffiti by Doze in the back. I didn't know it was by Doze. I didn't know who Doze was. Now Doze is one of my friends, so that's quite mad. But um, at the time, I just, I'd seen it. My dad took me to a graffiti show in 1983 because um, my dad kind of worked a little bit in the art world, but kind of in the sort of back, back end of things, um, ship, actually shipping art. Um, and he took me to this show um, 
by Lee and someone else. I can't remember who it was. Lee Quinones and someone else. I didn't really age with it because I didn't really understand it. I was quite young. Um, I was kind of maybe 11 or 12. Um, but then a kid came into my school with Subway Art in 1985 and i'd already been into kind of the the, the music and the break dancing thing but the graffiti side of things hadn't really entered my sphere and then this kid bought subway art in um his name is nick christaire um he was a super cool kid um and he always had cool stuff and he had like a bit of a, an american connection i think his dad might have been from the states or you know he was always going backwards and forwards and he bought this book for his kid and um, he came around my house and we sat copying this stuff out. And we, we decided we were going to do one. We were going to get some spray paint and we were going to make a piece. And I can't remember how we got the I think we just went into a shop and bought it with like whatever pennies we had and like bought like three cans of spray paint. And we were like, yes, this, this is kind of cool. Let's, let's plan another one and then maybe Three months later, we did another one, but um, it was that book. It was Subway Art. You know, it was a, it was just an iconic introduction to a movement that spoke to an entire generation. Yeah, that's stunning, man. I, I second a lot of that, and it's it's interesting too when you discover Subway Art or uh, Style Wars, the documentary. It's like, man, this thing is so much larger than just like st- something happening on a wall. There's there's yeah. this deep amount of lore and history that comes with it too. Yeah. I think, I think it gets lost a lot nowadays with new generations of people doing graffiti and, and tagging and rain. And I don't think that, you know, I, I think you go into like your average kid in his like teens or twenties now who's dabbling in graph. And I don't think you'll find subway art in the house. Yeah. That's a, that's Where a travesty. It is a travesty, whereas anyone kind of like, I would say 33 and above, they will have it in their house Um, as a point of, you know, as a point of importance, I guess. But I think, you know, with Style Wars, I saw Style Wars a little later. um, And that was really interesting because when you started, it humanized it. It humanized the people, it humanized the art form. It's one thing to see it in a book and it's very removed. You're very removed from it and the kind of the the aspect of what happened and how this was made. And suddenly there was this documentary that, and you know, how many kids of like 12 and 13 watch documentaries? I mean, you know, even that in itself is an abstract notion. And I'm, I'm sitting here watching this doc- documentary aged uh, 14 and thinking, wow, it's humanized all these people. All the, the people I saw in the book are suddenly real and tangible. I can see how they did things and I could see the movements. I could see how they were moving using pain. So it kind of just changed everything, mate. That's awesome, man. I, it's, it's also so cool too, that the people in these, the documentary style wars, they're such characters as well. Like they're not just regular like folks, they're super unique individuals, super duper New York 
heavy yeah. New York accent with, you know, all these crazy New York isms and yeah. like the, the scheme and duster conversation they have with like, he's like, he's like, uh, he's like Browns and beiges in the tree deep. Believe me, Nikki, I would never steer you wrong. Yeah. Stuff like that is just so classic, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he, going back to mayor, you know, like his little, his little three minutes of fame where, you know, they're asking, what do you write? And he's like, mayor, and they can't get his name by the mayor, M-E-A-R, da, 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 da. And the thing, like, people always talk about that. But for me, when he, when he gets his name right, when he says his name, they flash up one of his panel pieces. And I just remember going, whoa, what? And pause, you know, like, pause, look, pause, look, study, study. And I always loved that little panel piece. And, you know, to, to have that guy as one of my best friends. Like I, I'm on the phone to him pretty much every day. You know, we're going to Bordeaux together and Paris in a couple of weeks. Like he's coming to London. He always stays with us here. You know, I've got, I've got a mere sculpture on top of my book. Nice. You know, like that spins me out. It's like, that guy's actually part of my fabric now um so yeah it's weird it's weird yeah that kid from that little mare scene is now one of your adult friends who would have thought i know i know and he doesn't have that huge mop of hair anymore he's completely bald um but you know and he's i mean that i know his story now i know his life and you know um i think i'm allowed to say this we're, we're actually making a documentary about him which is i mean i'm i'm making a documentary about him with very my, cool my friend Tim is helping me and my wife's like executively producing it. And we've got some great people involved in it. And, and we actually start shooting when he comes to London, but you know, it's been in plans for about a year and a half. Um, and, you know, because I know his story and I, and I, I connect with his story and not just his background, like his now and his like conversation with modernism and, and, you know, constructivism and, he has this whole thing about art for the next century and how important what was graffiti and what is now contemporary art, what that means in the place of contemporary art now. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, you have to kind of, you have to champion people like that because he is a pioneer. He pioneered a, a whole movement of graffiti into abstract sculpture, you know, into abstract graffiti sculpture. And, you know, him and phase two were the first people to do that. And he was traveling around the world at, I don't know how old he was, 18, 19, you know, because those opportunities were there. Um, so, yeah, he definitely needs his cue. So we're making yeah. a movie about him. That's super cool. I, I'm excited to to see the progression of that and, and watch that. He's definitely a super inspirational dude. And I, I love that he has his graffiti page, but at the same time, he's talking about like Maudrian and like suprematism yeah. and like yeah, stuff yeah. like that. That oh, he, he knows like he's he's the history of art Bible, you know, like and he was like a scholar in residence at NYU for a while. He was the head of programs at the Museum of Graffiti. So, you know, he he has a, an academic side to him, which I think is really interesting as well. Yeah, that's super cool. 
speaking of academic and in, in, in art and academia together, did you study collegiately or, or at a university or did you just strictly no, just study in the streets? I pretty much just studied in the streets. I did a foundation. I don't know what the, um, the version of that would be in the US, but it's kind of like before you go to university, you do like one year of kind of prepping yourself. It's kind of like an in-between school and university kind of gap that you, you fill at a college, like an, an art school. And it's specifically for art, you do an art foundation. And I guess the idea is you try everything, printing, painting, and you find your groove so that when you decide you want to go to university, it's like, okay, I want to do illustration, I want to do this. Um, I did the foundation and I had it, you know, I had a portfolio full of art, but it wasn't the kind of art that universities wanted to see. So, so I didn't get my place. I didn't get a place at university. I didn't get that opportunity. And to be honest, I'm not sad. Um, I'd managed to save up a little bit of money working, you know, and stuff. And I had this money to kind of help me start off at university. And, and I went out and bought my first Apple Mac with the money I had. And I just, I kind of went to work, you know. And when I didn't have work, I'd, you know, I'd get a job like driving or doing whatever, you know, just to kind of balance it all out. Um, so yeah, I managed to, I managed to just get on with it. I didn't need to be collegially educated. I respect that, man. That's that's super cool. Um, how was the transition from doing, you know, art in the streets per se for free? You know, you're not working with a client. You're basically mm -hmm. your own client, painting, painting your name, trying to get your name out there. What was the transition like for you towards doing either? commissioned paintings or murals or kind of what came first and what was that transition like for you? Um, I guess it was a very slow transition because I, I painted a lot. I did. I mean, I don't know how many pieces I did over my graffiti career, but it's, it's easily in the kind of 4,000 mark, I would say. I did a lot of pieces. And I guess because I did so many pieces, I was invited to a lot of jams and, and events. And so, so I never kind of, I never wanted for paint. There was always paint there. Um, so graffiti, you know, I was quite lucky. It never really cost me anything because I managed to get to a level that helped me kind of just accumulate what I needed to do. Um, and then I guess because I was doing okay from that, um, commissions started to come through quite early on probably like in the early 90s I started doing commissions for people I, you know it would be things like I remember painting a guy's jeep who lived on my street and he you know, really loved to do the hard top of my jeep I was like cool so does that and you know and always little things going on um graffiti wise and job wise and, he, and then it just kind of escalated and I kind of started a company with a friend of mine called 404 Design. Um, and we were like a graphic design company, but our expertise were graffiti. So, you know, we were doing graffiti jobs for people, um, but with a kind of design aesthetic. And then we had clients like Red Bull, um, Kinder, Kinder Chocolate. They were one of our clients. So yeah, that was, that was kind of interesting point in my career. 
Yeah, I didn't know that at all. What were some of the the learning experiences you had doing that? I imagine quite a few. Um, well, I guess you just learn how to manage yourself in a kind of business sense. Um, you know, I always think it's really important. You know, you go to art school and you learn to make art, which is great. And the business of art and how to conduct yourself within the business of art. Um, there's a really good book called uh, Artworks. Artworks, I think I've got it over there. Artworks. And it's, um, it's actually an American book. And it, it kind of tells you everything you need to know about working in the art world. Um, a lot of it is irrelevant, but the bits that are relevant are great and amazing. Um, someone told me to get that book many years ago and it's always been there and always been kind of like, you know, an important staple in my library. Um, I think I learned to be patient. I learned to kind of let the, the projects happen as they happen. Um, and I think, I think the thing I learned the best is, you know, when I was at school and they said, oh, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I want to be an artist. And everyone said, oh, no, you should go and do graphic design because I was doing graffiti. And people automatically think, well, you do graffiti, you should go into graphics. And I was like, well, no, I kind of really want to be sort of like Jackson Pollock or Picasso. And no, 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 go into graphic design. And so I did. I went into graphic design. And, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm a fairly comparable graphic designer. I was designing record sleeves, books. I worked for record label for me years just doing record sleeves until that industry literally imploded um and i don't regret that but it wasn't what i wanted to do and i kind of came back to painting in a very very long arc but i think the thing that's good is even going that long way round, i got to where i wanted to be in the end but being a graphic designer for all those years informed the kind of work that i make now Whereas if I hadn't have done that, I think the work that I make now would look very, very different, if that makes any sense. How so? Um, well, I just think it would have been a lot looser and a lot kind of, you know, less tape heavy. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't have that graphic um, aesthetic to it. So I think it would look very different. I think it would be very loose and expressionistic um because that's kind of what was in my head i mean you know i'd probably be painting portraits or something. i don't know i just i have no idea yeah yeah but i mean I'm glad the way i did yeah same it definitely shows um some of the earlier paintings i think maybe it was well these probably aren't super duper early but i feel like i've seen some where you are in a bit more like gestural expressionistic a little mm. bit more loose. Do you kind of come and go with that with phases a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I hate making the same painting twice. So I'm always looking for, for new angles to kind of bring into the work that I make. Um, and I, I reference a lot of old work, you know, there's work that I did kind of maybe sort of mid to early, um, sort of mid to late 2000s that was quite gestural. Um, I did my first show of abstract paintings in Aberdeen in 2008. And they were all heavily, heavily gestural with big brush swashes, lots of drips. Um, 
not really any tape. I think there was maybe a couple of slightly taped lines just to kind of offset the the loose gestures with the backgrounds and have these kind of tight shapes within. Um, but the whole reason I did that show is because I was kind of a bit lost. And I'd gone to um, Western Australia and I was staying with a really good friend of mine, an artist called Stormy Mills. Don't know if you know him at all. Um, again, you know, one of my dearest, dearest, oldest friends, and I speak to him all the time. And he was saying, Rem, you need to focus on what you're good at. And you're so good with color. So I've always really rated the way you use color. Um, and I, I kind of didn't know what he meant, but I, I came home and I just started experimenting with these paintings and just trying to work with color, not really structures or letters or characters. Um, and I think if it wasn't for him, I really wouldn't have pushed that. So I really have to thank him for that because it really gave me, um, it gave me a focus to make that kind of work. So, so yeah, I did that show 2008. It was pretty, pretty cool, pretty successful. They were all big paintings. Um, I sold most of them. I've got one left that's over there that's still in my stock, in my storage. Um, and then I did another show the year after, which was twice the size in London and again, completely abstract. And it wasn't that successful because I, I don't think people got it. I think I was too ahead of the curve. Um, I think it got lost on quite a lot of people, but, um, but you know, I loved it. I was happy with it. It set a precedent for where I wanted to go and, and how I wanted to move forward. And it also thankfully engaged me with some really cool artists who'd seen the work and were like, oh, I need to meet him or I need to connect with him. And I met a guy called J-Bo Monk, who is a, a, an amazing artist from Berlin. Um, and a guy called Marco Fograssi from Milan, also an amazing artist. Um, and, and, and that network kind of started pushing out then the whole graffiturism thing happened in 2010 um, and I was part of the beginning of that with Poesia, Augustine Coffey, Kodak, uh, Jerry and Sco, Joker from Portland um, and we were all in San Francisco just painting a wall freestyling um, and it just kind of became this thing so yeah it was, it was an amazing time I'd say like 2008 to 2010 was a really fantastic time for creativity and, and new ideas. That's awesome, man. That's, that's super good to hear. And definitely the paintings and, and murals around that era definitely still ring through to this day. Um, seeing old photos of those, even the San Francisco ones and just kind of some from that era are really, really crazy. I, I don't know how you guys even came up with half that stuff. It's, it's, it's wild, man. Well, when you've like written your name for like, you know, 3000 times over and over again, you just kind of get bored and you want to do new things and change and abstract. I always, I always use the Beatles as a little bit of a kind of benchmark for change. Not that I'm comparing myself to the Beatles in any way, but they made all these like albums with like two, two and a half minute love songs. And then they abstracted and made the white album and revolver because they they had to okay the drugs were involved as well but you know they had to evolve um and i guess even doing the drugs was part of evolving um so yeah i kind of use them as my benchmark i'm not a particularly big beatles fan but i just i love the way they they transformed 
what they did. Yeah, there's parallel there for sure. I, I, I did a podcast the other day with a, an artist that we were kind of talking about something similar where, you know, some of your favorite bands, the first two albums they put out, they're like very, the focus is still kind of trying to find itself. And there's, there's a sense of like excitement in that. And there's an energy to that. But once they exhaust that initial direction, kind of like once you exhausted yourself of graffiti, then it's like, okay, let's transition to something a little different that feels new and and has that same like excitement to it. Because once you do something too much, you know, the passion kind of dwindles a little bit. Yeah, totally. It just becomes the norm, becomes boring. Have you have you gone like back to gra- to graffiti in some way that like you feel like you've been re-energized I, I, by it? I go, I, I paint, I still paint graffiti all the time. I was out with Zenz, uh, who's a great artist from, from the UK. Uh, I was out with him last week. We did a, we did a wall in a like Hall of Fame spot. Um, there's a guy called Tizer that I, I go out painting sometimes with. Um, I like to kind of keep my hand in. I probably do like maybe three, four, maybe a push five, six pieces a year now. Um, Just, I think it's important to still maintain that skill. And, and, you know, I'm 50 years old, but I feel like I can still burn most people. Definitely. And I think that's, part and parcel of being a graffiti writer you want to burn everyone you know you want to be the best it's it's called style writing for a reason um and and I was always I'm an only child so you know like I didn't have much competition as a kid so in my mind you know competition is a threat um which I think is healthy in graffiti you know and, and that's and even when you're painting with your best buddies you know you want to burn them and they want to burn you and that's what creates the best work, you know? And I think when people just turn up and do the same thing over and over again, and they lose that that slight edge to what they're doing, there's nothing there. You can see through it. You know, you can see when someone's gone to a wall and they're like, I'm gonna burn every fucking person here. You can see that and you can engage with that. Um, which is why I don't engage with much graffiti because it's all just, yeah, it's okay, it's fine, it's great, it's it for. And then every now and then someone just goes, bam, and they're like, whoa, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you came with a mission. Um, and I like that. I really like that. Yeah, it's crazy what people are, are able to do, even with the, the width of the internet and how, how you can find inspiration all over the world these days. And every once in a while, someone comes up with something, you're like, dude, that is yeah. unbelievable. How did you even, like, how did you come up with this in the modern era? It's, it's, it's wild. Do, do you find it, it's, uh, I guess, what's your reflection on kind of the state of graffiti in, in art these days with Instagram and museums being Instagrammable and things like that, you know? I mean, I, if I'm honest, Nick, I really don't follow that much graffiti. I've, I've got friends who are writers that I follow, and so I know their work. I don't really follow graffiti writers I don't know. Um, kind of all that's the same to me. There's stuff that I don't, you know, there's stuff I see that has no structure that I really dislike. I don't want to name anyone, but, you know, I see people who just kind of do like fat cat kind of swashy things and they like really loose fills. And it's like they're not putting paint on the wall. It's like they're so scared of wasting paint. They're like, and to me, 
I think that lacks structure. I think the most important thing in graffiti for me was style, was seeing how letters were styled and how that movement worked across the space, whether it was a wall or train or whatever. Um, it was always really, really the key focus for me was style. And if I, if I see things that lack style and technique is kind of the priority, I just switch off. It just doesn't interest me at all. Um, and I see a lot of that, sadly. Um, and I think the technology of paint and how paint has changed has a bit of a part to play in that as well. Um, you know, like you've got four different caps that have four different whips, you know, with this one, and you've got another can that's like really slow pressure and that has like 18 different caps. And it's kind of like in, in, in the eighties when I was doing graffiti, you had whatever you had, you just made do with whatever was in front of you and you, you had no choice, but to use it to the best of your capabilities. Um, so, so yeah, I, I know I sound like a grumpy old man who's like, Oh, all the kids nowadays, they don't know what they're doing, but in a way they don't, you know, it's too easy. Styles are there, you go on the internet, it's like scroll down through Instagram, there's 4 million different styles. Oh, I'm going to do old New York style. Oh, I'm going to do like, you know, um, 90s Bay Area style. Oh, I'm going to do like Dutch style from like the early 2000s. It's all there. Um, so I think the innovation has got lost a bit. But people still do it. Like I said, every now and then someone comes up with something and just go, wow. It's just yeah. rare now. I, I agree. And it, it's such a loud market too, even with art and, and graffiti in general, there's just, I don't know, the internet sometimes feels like a, like a dark void and you're just yeah. shouting into nothingness at times. You know, I feel like the, there's probably some solace in, uh, in like pre-internet painting and just literally trying to put it in a gallery because that's where people go to see artwork instead of like some dark yeah. corner of the internet, right? Yeah, but even that, you know, and stories get lost and stories get retold and they get changed and and we're all telling stories and we're all telling our own versions of stories. Um, and I guess there's an element of truth within all of them. But I think sadly, because of how we put those stories out, they all just get kind of transmogrified into kind of new versions of those stories and, and the stories just get lost a little bit um which i think is also a bit sad yeah it's like a a never-ending game of telephone where the story continually just gets watered down yeah. over time and you know i was a pioneer and he did this and did, was he yeah, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there, you know, and that's the thing. It's like you kind of question things and and everyone has their version of something. And yeah, I have my version, you know. I'm not who's to say my version isn't complete rubbish, but it is what it is. Definitely, I feel that. Um, so one last question I have for you before we go. Um, I, I tend to ask each artist or creative this each time just because I feel like as as creatives, it's very easy to talk about some of the, like, you know, some of the thought process and the, the creative drive behind some of the work that we do, but oftentimes it's not talked about enough. The, some of the hard times and, and the struggles and 
maybe the, the years or months where you felt like, man, I don't even know if I can keep doing this or, you know, maybe what is like the hardest maybe year from your experience in, in being an artist and, and how'd you kind of get through that? The last two and a half years have been pretty hard. Valid. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a really hard question, actually. I mean, I think there was a, a point in time, I'd say 2009, where, where I'd done that London show that I was telling you about, and, and I put a lot of money, energy, effort into it, and it just, it had fallen completely flat. I think I had like maybe 20 pieces in this show, and I'd sold one, and I was, you know, like financially, you know, really in, a, in the black, uh, in the red. Um, and I kind of, I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. I didn't know if I wanted to make art. Um, my daughter was at the time four years old, um, or five, five years old. Um, and I was kind of a bit of a stay at home dad because my wife, um, at the time was running a company. So she was you know, she was in the position where she needed to work and I needed to be at home and look after Lily. And that was just how it was. And that was totally cool. And that was amazing. Um, and because things weren't going well work-wise for me at that point, I think I was, I was quite open to the idea of doing something different um, or not, or just literally spending time with my daughter, which was great as well. So, so you know, I'm very lucky that I had that time. Um, and also, you know, I'm still lucky because, you know, because of how I work and what I do, I get to spend loads of time with my family. So that's amazing. And, you know, sometimes I get to go away. Like I went to Hong Kong a couple of years ago. I took them with me. Uh, and then we went to Vietnam after that. Um, you know, I've been to the States for work and I've taken them with me to New York. So, you know, they, they get to come with me sometimes as well when they go away. But most of the time I'm just here. So I'm around. Uh, I guess, yeah, I think 2009 was a very difficult year for me. Um, 2010 changed because I went, I did a show in San Francisco, which wasn't a commercial success in any way whatsoever. But I met Parisia, uh, I met Augustine uh, Coffee for the first time, um, who is such a dear friend to me and a key collaborator and he's also come to Bordeaux with me and Mayor. um and and Kodak I met as well and we had just this really amazing connectivity it kind of it put me in a, a forum with my peers who at the time were probably 75 percent in the U.S. in various different cities um and that opened up a lot of opportunities for me to go back and forth to the States constantly sort of over the next sort of 2010, I was there, 2012, I was there, 2013, 2014, you know, I was going backwards and forwards all the time. So I was quite lucky. I came out of that doldrum in a really nice kind of way with, with really beautiful people that were part of my my fabric and I could move forward with them and still, you know, they're all still amazing friends to me now. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. That's, that's a, it's a great outlook on, on moving past a tough situation and, you know, connecting with other artists and 
and trying to continue pushing yourself. That's huge, man. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'll tell you an interesting story that not many people know. Um, I, sure. I'd had uh, a piece that I sold to somebody um, and not for a huge amount. I think I'd sold him for like a thousand pounds or something like that. And uh, this would be about 2000 and early 2010, I think, or 2009. I can't remember. And he'd, he said, I, you know, I'm going to put this into auction in a year. I was like, yeah, cool, fine, whatever. It's your piece. And he put it into the auction. And as that happened, I was in this really low space. And the piece sold. It went for like double what it was, you know, um, marked up to, to estimate what the estimate was. It went for twice the estimate. So okay, that's cool. Kind of, it made me feel a bit better about myself. And these things are all little wins, you know. Um, and anyway, years later, um, we, my wife and I were in in our bathroom brushing our teeth, and she said, "I've got something to tell you." And I was like, "Oh my god, what?" You know, like she's not well, or she's divorcing me. I, you know, I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, "Do you remember that painting?" I'm like, "What painting?" And I, there's a lot of paintings. What painting? There's thousands. She went, the one that was in Bonhams. And I was like, yeah. She said, well, you know, you like you were having a really rough time at the time and, and you were like really considering not making art anymore. And I didn't know how to help you. And I was like, yeah, vaguely. And this was a good few years after. So this would have been 2000. 12 maybe so like this is years after she said well I bought that painting I bought it at auction I, I think I paid quite a lot of money for it because I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> I was like what she goes yeah and it's been sitting in my business partner's hallway wrapped in bubble for for like two years and then we got it back and I kind of just it made me appreciate the people I have around me, the people that love me. And it made me appreciate what I do as well. And I have that painting, it's right over there. I still have it to this day. It kind of found its way back to me. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting dichotomy for an artist to have something, you know, cause you make things and they leave you, they go. And I think for, for a piece to come back years later um, and to, for it to become part of your family again was really important for me. And it, yeah, it kind of made me feel very calm about what I was doing and very positive about what I was doing. So I'll never, ever sell that painting again. That's beautiful, man. That's a, that's a, really a heartwarming story dude that's that's awesome to see it come back full circle i bet that was a trip seeing it again huh yeah it was weird like i, I, I was like what the hell are you gonna tell me like what's going on and then she told me this painting's still around <laughs> yeah it's crazy that's crazy man well I, I i say we ended on that it's a beautiful it's a beautiful salute man that's absolutely that's awesome remy it's been it's been a pleasure man definitely look forward to meeting you one day and yeah. Well, hopefully I'll see you in uh, June if you if you can make it to the show in uh, Fort Wayne. Yeah, that's 
another thing too, all of our Indiana listeners, Remy's yeah, he's, he's in London, but him and uh, Mayor are going to be showing some, some works here in Indiana, which is unbelievable to me. It's such a small just, farm. It's going to be this myself, Mayor, Augustine coffee, um, uh, Delta, Boris Telegon, um, Juice126 from Birmingham, UK, Steve Moore from Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, Mad C, uh, Narva from Poland. Is that it? I think that's it. Yeah, there's like amazing lineup of artists, and the show is called Next Wave. Um, Dang, it, man. it says what it is on the tin, basically. It's going to be good. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I just, I know I told you via direct message, but Indiana is such a like flyover state that people don't really think of Indiana as anything art related beyond a, a cute landscape of some cornfields. So <laughs> the fact that oh, uh, your paintings well are. They will in June. I think it's going to be good because, you know, th these things don't always have to be in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. They can be where, you know, they can exist wherever. And that's kind of, you know, and the space, the space is amazing. And that space is, has opened its doors to all these artists. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool, man. I, I think it's going to be well received for sure. I'm, so. I'm personally very excited to see them and, um, I'll probably trek a few folks up there as well to, to take I'll a look. I'll make sure you're at the opening. So we'll, we'll get you to the, uh, the private view, which will be oh, great. Appreciate that, man. Well, Remy, keep crushing. And thanks for uh, squeezing me in with your, your schedule. Welcome, I know you're Nick. a busy dude. You're welcome, Nick. It was really nice chatting, man. My pleasure. Absolutely, buddy. You have a great rest of your week, man. Cool. You take care. Thank you. Awesome. See you, dude. Peace. Mm -hmm.